It is the nature of this God-given grace to bring distant things close to us. Faith looks upon things promised as though they were actually fulfilled. Faith gives a present subsistence to things that are yet future. That is, it realizes them to the mind, giving a reality and substantiality to them. Of the patriarchs it is written, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Hebrews 11.13 Though the divine promises were not fulfilled in their lifetime, yet the eagle eyes of faith saw them, and it is added that they were persuaded of them and embraced them. One cannot embrace distant objects, true, but faith being so sure of their verity makes them nigh. There is a sound of abundance of rain. Does not the reader now perceive the spiritual meaning of this language? That sound was certainly not heard by Ahab, nor even by any other person in the vast concourse on Mount Carmel. The clouds were not then gathered, yet Elijah hears that which shall be. Ah, if we were more separated from the din of this world, if we were in closer communion with God, our ears would be attuned to his softest whispers. If the divine word dwelt in us more richly, and faith was exercised more upon it, we should hear that which is inaudible to the dull comprehension of the carnal mind. Elijah was as sure that promised rain would come as if he now heard its first drops splashing on the rocks or as if he saw it descending in torrents. Oh, that writer and reader may be fully assured of God's promises and embrace them, living on them, walking by faith in them, rejoicing over them, for he is faithful who has promised. Heaven and earth shall pass away before one word of his shall fail. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. Verse 42. The views expressed by the commentators on this statement strike us as being neither carnal or forced. Some regard the king's action as being both logical and prudent. Having had neither food nor drink since early morning, and the day being now far advanced, he naturally and wisely made for home, that he might break his long fast. But there is a time for everything, and immediately following a most remarkable manifestation of God's power was surely not the season for indulging the flesh. Elijah, too, had had nothing to eat that day, yet he was far from looking after his bodily needs at this moment. Others see in this notice the evidence of a subdued spirit in Ahab, that he was now meekly obeying the prophet's orders. Strange indeed is such a concept. The last thing which characterized the apostate king was submission to God or his servant. The reason why he acquiesced so readily on this occasion was because compliance suited his fleshly appetites and enabled him to gratify his lusts. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. Has not the Holy Spirit rather recorded this detail so as to show us the hardness and insensibility of the king's heart? For three and a half years drought had blighted his dominions and a fearful famine had ensued. Now that he knew rain was about to fall, surely he would turn unto God and return thanks for his mercy. Alas, he had seen the utter vanity of his idols. He had witnessed the exposure of Baal. He had beheld the awful judgment upon his prophets, but no impression was made upon him. He remained stubborn in his sin. God was not in his thoughts. His one idea was, the rain is coming, so I can enjoy myself without hindrance. Therefore, he goes to make merry. 
While his subjects were suffering the extremities of the divine scourge, he cared only to find grass enough to save his stud. 18.5 And now that his devoted priests had been slain by the hundreds, he thought only of the banquet which awaited him in his pavilion. Gross and sensual to the last degree, though clad with the royal robes of Israel. Let it not be supposed that Ahab was exceptional in his Scottishness, but rather regard his conduct on this occasion as an illustration and exemplification of the spiritual deadness that is common to all the unregenerate, devoid of any serious thoughts of God, unaffected by the most solemn of his providences or the most wondrous of his works, caring only for the things of time and sense. We have read of Belshazzar and his nobles feasting at the very hour that the deadly Persians were entering the gates of Babylon. We have heard of Nero fiddling while Rome was burning, and even of the royal apartment of Whitehall being filled with a giddy crowd that gave itself up to frivolity while William of Orange was landing at Torbay. And we have lived to behold the pleasure-intoxicated masses dancing and carousing, while enemy planes were raining death and destruction upon them. Such is fallen human nature in every age. If only they can eat and drink, people act regardless of the judgments of God and are indifferent to their eternal destiny. Is it otherwise with you, my reader? Though preserved outwardly, is there any difference within? And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth, and put his face between his knees. Verse 42. Does not this unmistakably confirm what has been said above? How striking the contrast here presented. So far from the prophet desiring the convivial company of the world, he longed to get alone with God. So far from thinking of the needs of his body, he gave himself up to spiritual exercises. The contrast between Elijah and Ahab was not merely one of personal temperament and taste, but was the difference there is between life and death, light and darkness. But that radical antithesis is not always apparent to the eye of man. The regenerate may walk carnally, and the unregenerate can be very respectable and religious. It is the crises of life which reveal the secrets of our hearts and make it manifest whether we are really new creatures in Christ or merely whitewashed worldlings. It is our reaction to the interpositions and judgments of God which brings out what is within us. The children of this world will spend their days in feasting and their nights in revelry, though the world be hastening to destruction. But the children of God will betake themselves to the secret place of the Most High and abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. There are some important lessons here for ministers of the gospel to take to heart. Elijah did not hang around that he might receive the congratulations of the people upon the successful outcome of his contest with the false prophets, but retired from man to get alone with God. Ahab hastens to his carnal feast, but the Tishbite, like his Lord, has meat to eat, which others knew not of. John 4.32 Again, Elijah did not conclude that he might relax and take his ease following upon his public ministrations, but desired to thank his master for his sovereign grace in the miracle he had wrought. The preacher must not think his work is done when the congregation is dismissed. He needs to seek further communion with God, 
to ask his blessings upon his labors, to praise him for what he has wrought, and to supplicate him for further manifestations of his love and mercy. Chapter 21 Persevering in Prayer And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth, and put his face between his knees. 1 Kings 18.42 We closed our last chapter by pointing out that this verse sets forth some important lessons which ministers of the gospel do well to take to heart, the principle of which is the importance and need of their retiring from the scene of their ministry that they may commune with their Lord. When public work is over, they need to betake themselves to private work with God. Ministers must not only preach but pray, not only before and while preparing their sermons but afterwards. They must not only attend to the souls of their flock but look after their own soul also, particularly that they may be purged from pride or resting on their own endeavors. Sin enters into and defiles the best of our performances. The faithful servant, no matter how honored of God with success in his work, is conscious of his defects and sees reason for abasing himself before his master. Moreover, he knows that God alone can give the increase to the seed he has sown and for that he needs to supplicate the throne of grace. In the passage which is now to be before us, there is most blessed and important instruction, not only for ministers of the gospel, but also for the people of God in general. Once again it has pleased the Spirit here to let us into the secrets of prevailing prayer, for it was in that holy exercise the prophet was now engaged. It may be objected that there is not expressly stated in 1 Kings 18, verses 42 through 46, that Elijah did any praying on this occasion. True, and here is where we discover afresh the vital importance of comparing Scripture with Scripture. In James 5 we are told, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, verses 17 and 18. The latter verse clearly has reference to the incident we are now considering. As truly as the heavens were closed in response to Elijah's prayer, so were they now opened in answer to his supplication. Thus we have before us again the conditions which must be met if our intercessions are to be effectual. Once more we emphasize the fact that what is recorded in these Old Testament passages is written both for our instruction and consolation, Romans 15.4, affording as they do invaluable illustrations, typifications, and exemplifications of what is stated in the New Testament in the form of doctrine or precept. It might be thought that after so recently devoting almost the whole of two chapters in this book on the life of Elijah to showing the secrets of prevailing intercession, there was less need for us to take up the same subject again. But it is a different aspect of it which is now in view. In 1 Kings 18 verses 36 and 37, we learn how Elijah prayed in public. Here we behold how he prevailed in private prayer. And if we are really to profit from what is said in verses 42 through 46, we must not skim them hurriedly, but study them closely. Are you anxious to conduct your secret devotions in a manner that will be acceptable to God and which will produce answers of peace? Then attend diligently to the details which follow.
First, this man of God withdrew from the crowds and went up to the top of Carmel. If we would hold audience with the majesty on high, if we would avail ourselves of that new and living way which the Redeemer has consecrated for his people and enter into the holiest, Hebrews 10 verses 19 and 20, then we must needs retire from that mad and distracting world around us and get alone with God. This was the great lesson laid down in our Lord's first word on the subject before us. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Matthew 6, 6 Separation from the godless and the shutting out of all sights and sounds which take the mind off God is absolutely indispensable. But the entering of the closet and the shutting of its doors denotes more than physical isolation. It also signifies the calming of our spirit, the quieting of our feverish flesh, the gathering in of all wandering thoughts, that we may be in a fit frame to draw nigh unto and address the Holy One. Be still and know that I am God is his unchanging requirement. How often the failure of this shut door renders our praying ineffectual. The atmosphere of the world is fatal to the spirit of devotion and we must get alone if communion with God is to be enjoyed. Second, observe well the posture in which we now behold this man of God. He cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. Verse 42 Very, very striking is this. As one has put it, we scarcely recognize him. He seems so to have lost his identity. A few hours before, he stood erect as an oak of Bashan. Now he is bowed as a bulrush. As he confronted the assembled multitude, Ahab, and the hundreds of false prophets, he carried himself with majestic mien and becoming dignity. But now he would draw nigh unto the king of kings. The utmost humility and reverence marks his demeanor. There, as God's ambassador, he had pleaded with Israel. Here, as Israel's intercessor, he is to plead with the Almighty. Facing the forces of Baal, he was as bold as a lion. Alone with God, Most High, he hides his face and by his actions owns his nothingness. It has ever been thus with those most favored of heaven. Abraham declared, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Genesis 18.27 When Daniel beheld an anticipation of God incarnate, he declared, My comeliness was turned in me into corruption. Daniel 10.8 The seraphim veiled their faces in his presence. Isaiah 6.2 that to which we are now directing attention is greatly needed by this most irreverent and blatant generation. Though so highly favored of God and granted such power in prayer, this did not cause Elijah to take liberties with him or approach him with indecent familiarity. No, he bowed his knees before the Most High and placed his head between his knees, betokening his most profound veneration for that infinitely glorious being whose messenger he was. And if our hearts be right, the more we are favored of God, the more shall we be humbled by a sense of our unworthiness and insignificance, and we shall deem no posture too lowly to express our respect for the divine majesty. We must not forget that though God be our Father, he is also our sovereign, 
and that while we be his children, we are likewise his subjects. If it be an act of infinite condescension on his part for the Almighty even to behold the things which are in heaven and in earth, Psalm 113.6, then we cannot sufficiently abase ourselves before him. How grievously have those words been perverted. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. To suppose they give us license for us to address the Lord God as though we were his equals is to put darkness for light and evil for good. If we are to obtain the ear of God, then we must take our proper place before him, and that is, in the dust. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, comes before, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7 We must abase ourselves under a sense of our meanness, If Moses was required to remove his shoes ere he approached the burning bush in which the Shekinah glory appeared, we too must conduct ourselves in prayer as befits the majesty and might of the great God. It is true that the Christian is a redeemed man and accepted in the Beloved, yet in himself he is still a sinner. As another has pointed out, the most tender love which casts out the fear that hath torment begets a fear that is as delicate and sensitive as that of John's, who, though he had laid his head on the bosom of Christ, hesitated too hastily to intrude upon the grave where he had slept. Third, note particularly that this prayer of Elijah's was based upon a divine promise. When commanding his servant to appear again before Ahab, the Lord had expressly declared, And I will send rain upon the earth. 18.1 Why then should he now be found earnestly begging him for rain? To natural reason, a divine assurance of anything seems to render asking for it unnecessary. Would not God make good his word and send the rain irrespective of further prayer? Not so did Elijah reason, nor should we. So far from God's promises being designed to exempt us from making application to the throne of grace for the blessings guaranteed, They are designed to instruct us what things to ask for and to encourage us to ask for them believingly that we may have their fulfillment to ourselves. God's thoughts and ways are ever the opposite of ours and infinitely superior thereto. In Ezekiel 36 verses 24 through 36 will be found a whole string of promises yet in immediate connection therewith we read I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel, to do it for them. Verse 37 By asking for those things which God has promised, we own him as the giver, and are taught our dependence upon him. Faith is called into exercise, and we appreciate his mercies all the more when they are received. God will do what he undertakes, but he requires us to sue for all which we would have him do for us. Even to his own beloved son, God says, Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Psalm 2.8 His reward must be claimed. Even though Elijah heard, by faith, a sound of abundance of rain, nevertheless he must pray for it. Zechariah 10.1 God has appointed that if we would receive, we must ask. That if we would find, we must seek that if we would have the door of blessing opened, we must knock. 
And if we fail so to do, we shall prove the truth of those words, Ye have not, because ye ask not. James 4.2 God's promises then are given us to incite to prayer, to become the mold in which our petitions should be cast, to intimate the extent to which we may expect an answer. Fourth, his prayer was definite or to the point. Scripture says, Ask ye of the Lord reign, Zechariah 10.1. And for that very thing the prophet asked. He did not generalize, but particularized. It is just here that so many fail. Their petitions are so vague, they would scarcely recognize an answer if it were given. Their requests are so lacking in precision that the next day the petitioner himself finds it difficult to remember what he asked for. No wonder such praying is profitless to the soul and brings little to pass. Letters which require no answer contain little or nothing in them of any value or importance. Let the reader turn to the four Gospels with this thought before him and observe how very definite in his requests and detailed in describing his case was each one who came to Christ and obtained healing, and remember they are recorded for our learning. When his disciples asked the Lord to teach them to pray, he said, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go to him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, Luke 11.5, not simply food, but specifically three loaves. Fifth, his prayer was fervent. He prayed earnestly, James 5.17. It is not necessary for a man to shout and scream in order to prove he is in earnest. Yet, on the other hand, cold and formal askings must not expect to meet with any response. God grants our requests only for Christ's sake. Nevertheless, unless we supplicate him with warmth and reality, with intensity of spirit and vehemency of entreaty, we shall not obtain the blessing desired. This importunity is constantly inculcated in scripture where prayer is likened unto seeking, knocking, crying, and striving. Remember how Jacob wrestled with the Lord and how David panted and poured out his soul. How unlike them is the listless and languid petitioning of most of our moderns. Of our blessed Redeemer it is written that he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. Hebrews 5.7 It is not the half-hearted and mechanical asking which secures an answer, but the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man that availeth much. James 5.16 Sixth, note well Elijah's watchfulness in prayer. And said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. Verse 43 While we are instant in prayer and waiting for an answer, we must be on the lookout to see if there be any token for good. Said the psalmist, I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say, more than they that watch for the morning. Psalm 130, verse 5 and 6. The allusion is to those who are stationed on the watchtower gazing eastward for the first signs of the break of day, that the tidings might be signaled or trumpeted to the temple so that the morning sacrifice might be offered right on time. In like manner, the suppliant soul is to be on the alert for any sign of the approach of the blessing for which he is praying. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Colossians 4.2 
Alas, how often we fail at this very point. Because hope does not hold up the head of our holy desires, we pray, yet do not look out expectantly for the favors we seek. How different was it with Elijah. Seventh, Elijah's perseverance in his supplication. This is the most noticeable feature about the whole transaction, and it is one which we need particularly to heed, for it is at this very point most of us fail the worst. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing, nothing, nothing in the sky, nothing arising out of the sea to intimate the approach of rain. Does not both writer and reader know the meaning of this from personal experience? We have sought the Lord and then hopefully looked for his intervention, but instead of any token from him that he has heard us, there is nothing. And what has been our response? Have we petulantly and unbelievingly said, just as I thought, and ceased praying about it? If so, that was a wrong attitude to take. First, make sure your petition is grounded upon a divine promise, and then believingly wait God's time to fulfill it. If you have no definite promise, commit your case into God's hands and seek to be reconciled to his will as to the outcome. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. Even Elijah was not always answered immediately. And, and who are we to demand a prompt answer to our first asking? The prophet did not consider that because he had prayed once and there was no response, therefore he need not continue to pray. Rather did he persevere in pressing his suit until he received. Such was the persistency of the patriarch Jacob. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Genesis 32:26. Such was the psalmist's mode of praying. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. 40, verse 1. And he said, Go again seven times, verse 43, was the prophet's command to his servant. He was convinced that sooner or later God would grant his request, yet he was persuaded he should give him no rest. Isaiah 62, 7. Six times the servant returned with his report that there was no portent of rain. Yet the prophet relaxed not his application. And let us not be faint-hearted when no immediate success attends our praying. But be persistent, exercising faith and patience until the blessing comes. To ask once, twice, thrice, nay six times, and then be denied, was no slight test of Elijah's endurance but grace was granted him to bear the trial. Therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. Isaiah 30:18. Why? To teach us that we are not heard for our fervor or urgency or because of the justness of our cause. We can claim nothing from God. All is of grace and we must wait his time. The Lord waits, not because he is tyrannical, but that he may be gracious. It is for our good that he waits, that our graces may be developed, that submission to his holy will may be wrought in us. Then he lovingly turns to us and says, Great is thy faith, be it unto thee as thou wilt. Matthew 15:28. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have desired of him. John 5, verse 14 and 15. 
God cannot break his own word, but we must abide his time, and refusing to be discouraged, continue supplicating him until he appears on our behalf. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. Verse 44 The prophet's perseverance in prayer had not been in vain, for here was a token from God that he was heard. God does not often give a full answer to prayer all at once, but a little at first and then gradually more and more, as he sees that to be good for us. What the believer has now is nothing to what he shall yet have if he continues instant in prayer, believing, and earnest prayer. Though God was pleased to keep the prophet waiting for a time, he did not disappoint his expectation, nor will he fail us if we continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Then let us be ready to receive with cheerfulness and gratitude the least indication of an answer to our petitions accepting it as a token for good and an encouragement to persevere in our request till there be full accomplishment of those desires which are grounded upon the word. Small beginnings often produce wonderful effects as the parable of the grain of mustard seed clearly teaches, Matthew 13, 31 and 32. The feeble efforts of the apostles met with remarkable success as God owned and blessed them. We regard the words, like a man's hand, as possessing a symbolic meaning. A man's hand had been raised in supplication and had, as it were, left its shadow on the heavens. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. Verse 44 Elijah did not disdain the significant omen, little though it was, but promptly took encouragement from the same. So convinced was he that the windows of heaven were about to be opened and plentiful showers given that he sent his servant with an urgent message to Ahab that he should get away at once ere the storm burst and the brook Kishon be so swollen that the king would be prevented from making his journey homeward. What holy confidence in a prayer-hearing God did that display. Faith recognized the Almighty behind the little cloud. A handful of meal had been sufficient under God to sustain a household for many months, and a cloud, like a man's hand, could be counted upon to multiply and furnish an abundant downpour. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. Verse 45 Should not this speak loudly to us? O sorely tried believer, take heart from what is here recorded the answer to your prayers may be much nearer than you think. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, verse 45. The king had responded promptly to the prophet's message. How, how much sooner are the ministers of the Lord attended to when giving temporal advice than they are when offering spiritual counsel? Ahab had no doubt now that the rain was about to fall. He was satisfied that he who answered Elijah with fire was on the point of answering him with water. Nevertheless, his heart remained as steeled against God as ever. Oh, how solemn is the picture here presented. Ahab was convinced, but not converted. How many like him there are in the churches today who have religion in the head, but not in the heart, convinced that the gospel is true, yet rejecting it, assured that Christ is mighty to save, yet not surrendering to him. Chapter 22 In Flight 
In passing from 1 Kings 18 to 1 Kings 19, we meet with a sudden and strange transition. It is as though the sun was shining brilliantly out of a clear sky, and the next moment, without any warning, the black clouds drape the heavens and crashes of thunder shake the earth. The contrasts presented by these chapters are sharp and startling. At the close of the one, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah as he ran before Ahab's chariot. At the beginning of the other, he is occupied with self and went for his life. In the former, we behold the prophet at his best. In the latter, we see him at his worst. There he was strong in faith and the helper of his people. Yet here he is filled with fear and is the deserter of his nation. In the one he confronts the four hundred prophets of Baal undaunted. In the other he flees panic-stricken from the threats of one woman. From the mountain top he betakes himself into the wilderness, and from supplicating Jehovah that he would vindicate and glorify his great name to begging him to take away his life. Who would have imagined such a tragic sequel? In the startling contrast here presented we have a striking proof of the divine inspiration of the scriptures. In the Bible, human nature is painted in its true colors. The characters of its heroes are faithfully depicted. The sins of its noteworthy persons are frankly recorded. True, it is human to err, but equally true, it is human to conceal the blemishes of those we most admire. Had the Bible been a human production, written by uninspired historians, they had magnified the virtues of the most illustrious men of their nation and ignored their vices or, if mentioned at all, glossed over them and made attempts to extenuate the same. Had some human admirer chronicled the history of Elijah, his sad failure would have been omitted. The fact that it is recorded, that no effort is made to excuse it, is evidence that the characters of the Bible are painted in the colors of truth and reality, that they were not sketched by human hands, but that the writers were controlled by the Holy Spirit. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. 1 Kings 18.46 This is most blessed. The hand of the Lord is often used in scripture to denote his power and blessing. Thus Ezra said, The hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy. 8.31 The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Acts 11.21 This word coming in here points an instructive sequel to what was before us in verse 42. There we beheld the prophet cast down on the earth in self-abasement before God. Here we see God honoring and miraculously sustaining his servant. If we would have the power and blessing of God rest upon us, we must take a lowly place before him. In this instance, the hand of the Lord communicated supernatural strength and fleetness of foot to the prophet so that he covered the 18 miles so swiftly as to overtake and pass the chariot. Thus did God further honor the one who had honored him and at the same time supply Ahab with yet another evidence of Elijah's divine commission. This was illustrative of the Lord's way. Where there is a man who takes his place in the dust before the Most High, it will soon be made apparent before others that a power beyond his own energizes him. And he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Each detail contains an important lesson for us. 
The power of God resting upon Elijah did not render him careless and negligent of his own duty. He gathered up his garments so that his movements might be unimpeded. And if we are to run with patience the race that is set before us, we need to lay aside every weight. Hebrews 12.1 If we are to stand against the wiles of the devil, we must have our loins girt about with truth. Ephesians 6.14 By running before Ahab, Elijah took the lowly place of a common footman, which should have shown the monarch that his zeal against idolatry was prompted by no disrespect for himself, but actuated only by jealousy for God. The Lord's people are required to honor the king in all civil matters, and here too it is the duty of ministers to set their people an example. Elijah's conduct on this occasion served as another test of Ahab's character. If he had had any respect for the Lord's servant, he would have invited him into his chariot, as the eminent Ethiopian did Philip, Acts 8.31. But it was far otherwise with this son of Belial. Onward sped the wicked king toward Jezreel, where his vile consort awaited him. The day must have been a long and trying one for Jezbel, for many hours had passed since her husband had gone forth to meet Elijah at Carmel. The peremptory command he had received from Jehovah's servant to gather all Israel together unto that mount, and the prophets of Baal as well, intimated that the crisis had been reached. She would therefore be most anxious to know how things had gone. Doubtless, she cherished the hope that her priests had triumphed, and as the rain clouds blotted out the sky, would attribute the welcome change to some grand intervention of Baal in response to their supplications. If so, all was well. Her heart's desire would be realized, her scheming crowned with success. The undecided Israelites would be won over to her idolatrous regime, and the last vestiges of the worship of Jehovah would be stamped out. For the troublesome famine Elijah was solely to blame. For the ending thereof she and her gods should have the credit. Probably such thoughts as these occupied her mind in the interval of waiting. And now the suspense is over. The king has arrived and hastens to make report to her. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. 19.1 The first thing which strikes us about these words is their noticeable omission. The Lord himself was left out entirely. Nothing is said of the wonders he had wrought that day, how that he had not only caused fire to come down from heaven and consume the sacrifice, but even the very stones of the altar, and how it had licked up great quantities of water in the trench around it, and how in response to the prayer of his servant, rain was sent in abundance. No, God has no place in the thoughts of the wicked. Rather do they put forth their utmost efforts to banish him from their minds. And even those who, from some form of self-interest, take up with religion and make a profession and attend the public services, yet to talk of God and his wondrous works with their wives in their homes is one of the last things we should find them doing. With the vast majority of professors, religion is like their Sunday clothes, worn that day and laid by for the rest of the week. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. As God is not in the thoughts of the wicked, so it is the way of unbelief to fix upon secondary causes or attribute unto the human instrument what the Lord is the doer of. It matters not whether he act in judgment or in blessing. 
God himself is lost sight of and only the means he employs or the instruments he uses are seen. If a man of insatiable ambition be the divine instrument for chastising nations laden with iniquity, that instrument becomes the object of universal hatred. But there is no humbling of the nations before the one who wields that rod. If a Whitfield or a Spurgeon be raised up to preach the word with exceptional power and blessing, he is worshipped by the religious masses, and men talk of his abilities and his converts. Thus it was with Ahab. First he ascribed the drought and famine to the prophet. Art thou he that troubleth Israel? 1817. Instead of perceiving that it was the Lord who had a controversy with the guilty nation, and that he was the one mainly responsible for its condition, and now he is still occupied with what Elijah had done. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. He would relate how Elijah had mocked her priests, lashed them with his biting irony, and held them up to the scorn of the people. He would describe how he had put them to confusion by his challenge, and how he, as if by some spell or charm, had brought down fire from heaven. He would enlarge upon the victory gained by the Tishbite, of the ecstasy of the people thereon, how they had fallen on their faces, saying, Jehovah, he is God, Jehovah, he is God. That he recounted these things unto Jezebel, not to convince her of her error, but rather to incense her against God's servant, is clear from his designed climax. And withal, how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. How this revealed, once more, what an awful character Ahab was. As the protracted drought with the resultant famine had not turned him unto the Lord, so this divine mercy of sending the rain to refresh his dominions led him not to repentance. Neither divine judgments nor divine blessings will of themselves reclaim the unregenerate. Nothing but a miracle of sovereign grace can turn souls from the power of sin and Satan unto the living God. It is not difficult to imagine the effect which would be produced upon the haughty, domineering, and ferocious Jezebel when she heard Ahab's report. It would so hurt her pride and fire her furious temper that nothing but the speedy dispatch of the object of her resentment could pacify it. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Verse 2. If Ahab's heart was unaffected by what had transpired on Carmel, remaining steeled against God, still less was his heathen consort softened thereby. He was sensual and materialistic, caring little about religious matters. So long as he had plenty to eat and drink, and his horses and mules were cared for, he was content. But Jezebel was of a different type, as resolute as he was weak, crafty, unscrupulous, merciless, Ahab was but a tool in her hands, fulfilling her pleasure and therein, as Revelation 2.20 intimates, she was a foreshadowing of the woman riding the scarlet-colored beast, Revelation 17.3. The crisis was one of gravest moment, and policy as well as indignation prompted her to act at once. If this national reformation were permitted to develop, it would overthrow what she had worked for years to establish. So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them, her slain prophets, by tomorrow. 
Behold the implacable and horrible enmity against God of a soul that has been abandoned by him. Utterly incorrigible, her heart was quite insensible of the divine presence and power. Behold how that awful hatred expressed itself. Unable to hurt Jehovah directly, her malice vents itself on his servant. It has ever been thus with those whom God has given up to a reprobate mind. Plague after plague was sent upon Egypt. Yet so far from Pharaoh throwing down his weapons of rebellion, after the Lord brought his people out with a high hand, that wretch declared, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my lust shall be satisfied upon them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Exodus 15.9 This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.